0: Hello fellow adventurers and welcome to the Nerdland, where we transform our gaming passion into incredible game designs and learn how to nerd like a boss. And of course, welcome to the year 2019. May it be the year in which our games break all the Kickstarter records and conquer the hit lists on BoardGameGeek by storm. My name is Marvin and I am an ambitious game designer on my quest to develop a cooperative fantasy card game. For this podcast, my vision is to take you with me on this exciting journey. Together, we will explore the secrets of different game mechanics and reach the next level as a game designer. In one of our last episodes, I told you that I probably spent a little bit too much time playing Artifact. Well, I think I'm over it. The only problem is, I may have replaced one truck with another. A few days ago, I started playing Keyforge, the unique card game by Richard Garfield who is also the developer of Magic the Gathering, one of my all-time favorite games. I spent quite a bit of time thinking about the core concept of a unique card game and some of the mechanics of Keyforge in particular. Therefore, I decided to review Keyforge for today's episode from a card game designer's perspective. I will not so much talk about how to play the game or specific tactics you could use. I am more interested in the game mechanics and how they will work out. My goal is to identify interesting concepts that could be used by other game designers for their own games. So let's get started. And now for you, the main quest. For those of you who do not know Keyforge or did not have the chance to play it yet, let me briefly explain what the game's core concept is. The game was designed by Richard Garfield and is published by Fantasy Flight Games. Keyforge is a competitive card game in which players take on the role of an Archon. Um, And Keyforge is the unique game. That means each Archon deck is one of a kind. No other player in the world will have the same deck as you. But how is that possible, you may ask. Our mindset of traditional TCGs tells us that every other player could trade or acquire the same set of cards to build the same deck. But in Keyford there is no deck building. The deck you buy is not only unique in its card composition, it's also ready to play. You can buy a deck for, I think, around 8 or 10 euros and just start playing. Each deck is made up of three factions and a selection of 12 cards for each faction. Altogether, there exist seven factions and there are something like 50 plus cards for each faction. In addition, each deck has an individualized name for the Archon, who the deck belongs to, and unique procedurally generated graphic, which appears on the back of every card of your deck. That means every composition of a deck is unique. Fantasy Flight Games claims that there are 104 quadrillion possible 37-card decks. And remember, unlike in Magic, you as a player are not allowed to change the composition of the cards in your deck. There is no deck building at all. You open your 37-card deck and are ready to play. The goal of the game is to use your cards to collect a resource called ember and the ember is then used to forge keys and the first player who forges his third key wins the game on the spot. The interesting part is here that you do not have to kill your opponent as it is in most other competitive games. Your only goal is to forge three keys before your opponent does. I have divided this uh, episode in two parts. In the first part I will talk about the concept of unique games in general and in the second part I will dig a little bit deeper into Keyforge as a game and invest uh, the different mechanics the game uses. So let's start to analyze the idea of unique games in general. Richard Garfield gave a very interesting interview on the Fantasy Flight Games website. You can find the link in the show notes. In the interview, he talked about his idea behind the concept of unique games. He first started thinking about unique decks in the 90s. He was fascinated by the idea that every player could own something unique. When Magic came out in the 90s, the internet was not how it is today. There was no net decking and all the information about Magic came from magazines like The Duelist, Inquest or Caterfact. It was way more fun back then exploring all the available cards while opening your packs and playing with them. Today everyone knows all the cards before the pre-release from looking through the internet spoiler list and it is always a well-known knowledge which cards and decks are the top tier decks in the current metagame. With unique decks, Richard Garfield's intention was to bring back some of the excitement from TCGs before the internet took over the world. While the idea makes a lot of sense from a design perspective, it also creates massive challenges. So, let's go through some of them quickly. The first one is uh, the algorithm. First and foremost, I find it incredibly funny and almost grotesque that the technical progress Richard Garfield wanted to overcome here in form of the internet and the net decking is also the solution for one of the biggest problems of unit games. The creation and rendering process of unique games. Without the immense processing power of today's computer, the rendering of the unique deck lists and artworks would not have been possible. The internet plays also a vital role as you can register your decks as um, to your account using a QR code printed on a card in every deck. The main challenge from a game design perspective is the creation of the decks. How can you make sure that every instance of a deck is unique? And how can you make sure that every deck is playable? Or how do you make sure that the decks are fun to play? And how can you balance them? I don't know what the core design principles of Keyforge were, but I am sure one of the goals must have been to make the game playable with a wide range of decks. And this is only possible if the rules and the interactions are simple enough. Compared to other TCGs, I think there is less design space for very complex and unique card designs. In Magic, for example are a lot of cards that can make only sense in some very specific deck compositions. These cards are borderline unplayable in 99% of all decks, while they shine in the remaining 1% of decks. An example in Magic would be Emrakul, a card that costs 15 mana and almost wins you the game on the spot. But you you barely get to 15 mana in a typical Magic game. So you need to build your deck around this card to be able to play it. But if you're able to do that, the card is incredible. Uh, in Keyforge, a card with this profile is nothing you could ever print in a unit game. So the main design challenge here is to create a rule set that supports a wide range of combinable mechanics in order to create at least playable decks. But if you think about Magic, these extraordinary cards with these fringe use cases are often the cards players engage the most with. So if you want to have these more complex combo-like cards in a unique game, you need some kind of algorithm that makes sure that some cards are only combined with other cards in a certain way. That means, if you have a card that cares about a specific creature type for example, wouldn't it be incredibly unsatisfying to have a card that cares about knights in your deck, but your deck does not contain any? This is exactly what the Keyforge algorithm takes care of. It ensures that Cards that are meant to be combined do at least have a certain threshold of other card that could be combined it with. Individual cards could in some cases have downstream dependencies, such as if X is selected from pool 1, then draw either A, B or C from pool 2. In the knight example, the algorithm could take care that your deck has at least 4 knights in it before it adds the knight combo card. In addition, a database of product instances is needed and it needs to be maintained to ensure that each new instance of a deck is a unique one. All these challenges require a very complex and intelligent algorithm that takes care of the deck creation. Other challenges come from printing and production. Conventional offset printing possibilities are not feasible here. And how would the physical collation happen? It cannot be random. It is bound to the algorithm. Each deck contains a unique card back with a unique graphic, a unique name and a unique combination of house cards. The software needs to handle not only the algorithm of item sequence, but also random name generation and a procedurally generated unique image, all of which would need to be automatically collated and prepared for output. Fantasy Flight Game mentioned in an article that these facts caused a lot of headaches regarding the computing power of the rendering process. I think at one point in time they needed 166 days to render 100,000 decks. Printing is also more complex and more expensive as it requires digitally printed cards instead of offset printing, which is in general two to four times more expensive and way slower. I have heard rumors on Reddit that the game is probably printed in Germany. So if you are interested in the production process, um, I also shared this link in the show notes. But the technical challenges are not the only ones. The next challenge is flavor. The randomness of unique card games leads to the necessity to combine different factions and cards at random. It is therefore very difficult to transport flavor and story within a deck. There is no such thing as a themed goblin deck for example. Richard Garfield mentioned that it was required by game design to work with a variety of different factions that could be mixed and matched. If you think about that from a narrative aspect, it is quite difficult to find reasons why all of these different factions and cards should sometimes work together and sometimes not. I personally don't like the flavor of Keyforge at all. I don't like the artwork. And the story is almost non-existent. And I don't think this will change in the future. Maybe it is just impossible to create a very large amount of possible decks and a compelling story at the same time. One of the biggest worries I have heard and read about over and over again is balancing. With 104 quadrillion decks or possible decks, how can you make sure that all the decks are roughly equal in power? The truth is, you can't. And the developers knew that. Richard Garfield wrote a nice short story of balancing on BoardGameGeek. This link is also in the show notes. The core message is, instead of making decks fair, they chose the approach of making as many decks as possible playable and fun against each other. They accepted the fact that decks will have different power levels. To some degree, the different power levels can be compensated by variance and player skill. But only to some degree... Therefore, Fantasy Flight Games came up with a nice balancing idea of putting chains on the favorite deck. Chains are some kind of handicap mechanic designed to balance out stronger decks. Basically, each chain costs deck one or sometimes more cards over the course of the game. I have not played Keyforge on a tournament or competitive level, but I like the idea of chains. And I also like the fact that they did not try to make decks equally powerful, because I don't think this is even possible. However, I am a little worried about the emotions that players have when they open a deck that is more or less garbage. Yes, they could play the deck against another deck and give the other deck some chains, but I still don't like the disappointment you get when opening a bad deck. But you could compare that with opening a bad booster pack in other Tasty cheese I guess. So maybe it's not that bad at all. One advantage of unique deck games is that you do not have to be as strict with the identity of color or faction as for example in Magic. Richard Garfield described this as follows. If you are going to have factions in games where a player can choose the cards they want to play with, you must be very careful not to bleed the powers from one faction to another. If you put a few cards in the wrong place, even if those cards are technically rare, players may choose to play with them a lot. On the other hand, with a a unique deck game, you can have a house with, for example, a few big creatures, but predominantly small creatures. The house will have the character you would expect, mostly small creatures, with some exceptions. This makes designing houses feel much more like designing characters, rather than simply dividing up powers between factions. I think the concept of a unique deck game is very innovative. However, I think it is very difficult to compare with TCGs, ZCGs or LCGs. It is by no means a direct improvement or a successor. Rather, I have the feeling the target audience is slightly different. For some people, it is a no-go that they are not able to customize their own deck, because they love deck building. For others, this is almost a relief, as they simply do not have the time or the interest to think about deck building and acquiring the required cards on the secondary market. From my perspective, unique deck games are just at their beginning. And with new innovation, with regard to printing and the algorithms, I think there is more to come. However, at the current point in time, I think it is significantly more complex to create a unique deck game than a traditional TCG. We now talked quite a bit about the core concept of unique deck games. Let's dive a little deeper into Keyforge and its mechanics now. Maybe we can find some inspiration for our games. The essential question that the game poses to the players is, how can you forge three keys before your opponent does? To answer this question, the most important player skill is to understand their deck and implement the correct strategies to acquire amber and prevent the opponent from forging keys. There are no alternative win or loss conditions. No player life bones. You do not lose when your deck of cards is empty. The only goal is to acquire enough ember to forge your three keys before your opponent does. And to forge a key you must start a turn with at least six pieces of ember. Once a player has created the third key the game immediately ends. Each player starts the game with a deck of 36 cards. um, And each deck always consists of three factions and 12 cards per faction. The different card types are Actions, which are typically one-time effects. Artifacts, which are permanent effects that stay in play and can be used repeatedly. Uh, creatures, which are used to reap amber and fight opposing creatures. And enhancements, which are permanent improvements that are attached to your creatures on the battlefield. The turn order in Keyforge consists of five phases. First, you forge a key if you control at least six amber. Second phase is that you have to choose one of your three houses that you want to play this round. The third phase is your main phase where you can play, discard and use cards of the chosen house. And then the fourth phase is the ready your cards phase or the untap step uh, where you um, untap all of your cards. And the last step is that you draw cards from your deck of cards until you reached your starting hand size, which is typically 6. The turn order is quite clever, but I come to that point later when, when I talk about the different mechanics. The most important decision is the house choice. The chosen house determines not only which cards you can play from your hand, but also the cards you can use on the battlefield. It is very important to understand that cards have no playing costs. Let me repeat this. There is no mana, no stamina or whatsoever cost for playing a card from your hand. You can play cards from your hand that correspond with the chosen faction as well as activate those cards already in play from the nominated faction. That means if your starting hand has 6 cards from one house, you can play your entire hand in one round. The cards typically have a broad range of effects, some of which are resolved when they come into play while others are utilized through through being activated or fulfilling certain criteria. From a game designer's perspective, that feels incredibly scary because you lose your main card balancing ability by not using any kind of resource for the cards. This was probably the aspect of the game that I was most suspicious about. But after playing some games, I must say the house choice creates very interesting trade-offs. Trade-offs between your board, which is often not represented equally in all of the houses, and your hand, which is also not equally distributed in your houses. To make that crystal clear, if you choose one house because you have three cards in your hand of that house that you would like to play, but your creatures in play are from another house, you cannot use these creatures during that turn. That means you often have to decide between developing your board and using your board. In the games I have played, this mechanic has proven itself to be a great comeback mechanic. Often a player was very far ahead on board. But as his hand was mostly stuck with cards from other houses, the player wasn't able to develop his board any further. Sometimes there is an obvious house choice, but most of the time at least two of the houses have arguments for choosing them during a turn. The result is that players have a lot of agency in how to play a deck. From the few games I've played, I felt like the decks had more variety of gameplay than a very streamlined Magic deck. By focusing on the different houses in their decks in different ways, it can almost be like playing a different deck. If you want to compare it with Magic, it feels more like a limited deck with different strategies. Then a very streamlined constructed deck that has a very clear strategy. There are some cards that can interact with house choice. For example, there are some cards that can restrict or force a specific house choice from your opponent. I like this implementation a lot. Why? Because it creates interesting choices. You as a player do have some information which house could be the best for your opponent based on the current board state. But there is also hidden information, the opponent's hand. You have to make a decision under uncertainty, if you want to choose which house he has to play. You cannot control the entire turn of your opponent, but your decision can still have a very major impact on the opponent's strategy. The entire mechanic of choosing a house leads to an aspect of the game that is not immediately apparent. Handcrafting. And handcrafting is actually a big aspect of the game. Throughout the game you are managing your cards and trying to craft a hand for different situations. Or for a good combination of cards. This can be specific combos or simply many cards of one specific factions. On the other hand, it can feel sometimes very annoying if you can only use some of your card's Um, Or resources. For me it was frustrating that I never had the chance to combine the spell of one house with a creature of another house in the same turn. To mitigate that feeling some cards have the ability omni. That means you may use that card even if the card does not belong to the active house. Altogether I like the mechanic of choosing houses quite a bit. The entire mechanic felt new and innovative um, because it asks different questions than the typical mana systems that are out there in most tradable card games. Let's talk a little bit about the resource system, Ember. Ember really is only required to forge keys. You do not need it to play or activate any cards and there is no such thing as mana or stamina or how it is called in other games. Um, And you can get Ember in different ways. You can reap, that means any Ready creature you have on the battlefield of the active house um, may reap during its turn when a creature is used to reap, you gain one amber to your amber pool. The second possibility is uh, amber bonus that means that many cards in the game have an amber bonus which is printed on the on the card itself and when a card with an amber bonus is played, you as a player gain that much amber. but you can also steal amber from your opponent. Um, And when an ability steals ember, the stolen ember is removed from your opponent's ember pool and added to your pool. But there's another form of stealing, which is capture. Um, Some cards, um, especially creatures, have the ability capture. And when captured ember is taken from an opponent's ember pool, um, it is not placed into your ember pool, it's placed on a creature controlled by the capturing player. You are not allowed to use this ember that is stored on the creature now to forge a key. So it's more or less, I would say it is frozen because your opponent cannot use it as well. And when a creature with ember on it leaves the battlefield, the ember is placed in the opponent's ember pool again. It is always obvious for both players how much ember the opponent has and whether he will forge a key in his next turn or not. What really comes into play here is the order of a turn. I think the turn order was chosen wisely by the developers. The keys are forged at the beginning of the turn. As a player, you ask your opponent the question during your turn. I have more than 6 ember acquired. Can you somehow prevent me from getting a key in my next turn? The opponent then has exactly one round of time to interact with the opponent's amount of amber. I like that there are different mechanics interacting with the ember pool. It always feels like a back and forth between the players. All the game components, especially creatures and spells, feel well integrated into the theme of acquiring ember. If you have captured a lot of ember which is stored on a creature until the creature dies, the entire game can revolve around the question of whether you can keep that creature alive or not, which I think is an interesting twist in the game. This brings us to combat. Combat is quick. It's typically simple and it's usually deadly. When a creature is used to fight, its controller chooses an eligible creature controlled by the opponent as the target of the attack. Each of the two creatures then deal damage um, equal to its power to the other creature. And all of this damage is dealt simultaneously. There is also armor that gives some of your creatures um, protection against incoming attacks each turn. For example, if your creature has armor two, it prevents the first two damage that, is, that are dealt to the creature in this turn. Health and attack power are a shared stat. This means a creature with attack 4 has also 4 hit points. And when a creature takes an amount of damage equal to its attack value, it dies. However, damage on a creature does not reduce its power. If a creature with 4 power got 3 damage, the damage sticks, but the power is still 4. This means taking damage does not cause any consequences until it's lethal. For me, the combat system is fine, but almost a bit too simple. I don't like the fact that I have no possibility to interact during the combat step. No instance that I can play. Nothing. I only have to watch how my opponent kills all of my creatures. Combat is entirely deterministic and feels more like a puzzle. There's no risk of failure, but no risk of failure also means there is not that much tension. I'm really missing the combat tricks from from Magic the Gathering here. But from a designer's perspective, I can understand the decision that there are no instants in the game and that you can only act during your turn because uh, you do not need uh, such things as a stack, for example, which is often a very complex, complex uh, mechanic. There are two combat-related mechanics I wanted to talk about as well. This is, um, some creatures can have the mechanic elusive and skirmish. Elusive means that the first time a creature with uh, the keyword elusive is attacked each turn, it is dealt no damage and deals no damage to the attacker in the fight. This means the opponent needs to spend more resources, more creatures, to kill your creature. I like this mechanic, because it gives you as a player an ability to protect your creature, but it does not completely prevent interaction from happening. In Magic, for example, it's very rare that you can interact with a creature that has Indestructible or Hexproof. The other ability that I would like to mention here is Skirmish. When a creature with the skirmish keyword is used to fight, it takes no damage from the opposing creature when the damage from the fight is dealt. I like that ability also a lot because it allows you to create very weak creatures with only one power, for example, but very strong abilities. It gives you some design space. You can then create creatures that can attack and apply a very strong effect, But do not die when they attack. The opponent still has to do some work. He needs to attack this creature. Another aspect I would like to talk about is summoning sickness. That means uh, creatures cannot be used in the turn they are played. In magic there is summoning sickness as well and it's a very annoying topic. Anyone who has ever explained magic to a new player knows why it's a painful topic. Creatures that come into play are not allowed to attack or to take actions for one round. However, there is no indication of this on the cards and the creature you just played looks exactly like the creature you played the last round. So you have to remember this effect by yourself. In addition, artifacts don't suffer summoning sickness in magic. Except, of course, they are artifact creatures. All in all, a very confusing mechanic for new players. In Keyforge, creatures and artifacts always come into play tapped, or how it is called here, exhausted. This immediately gives you a visual hint that you can't use the creature. And unlike Magic, the untapped step is at the end of the turn. This also has an advantage, Um, another advantage. If the opponent can tap one of your creatures on his turn, it's not usable for you during your turn because the untap step is not in the beginning, it is in the end of the turn. This effect is also simply visualized by tapping and does not require any extra status cards, tokens or reminders. Of course, this would not be possible with Magic because the concept that the defending player determines uh, the blocks um, instead of the attacker would no longer be working. However, for Keyforge, the turn order and the usage of tapping and untapping creatures feels way better than in Magic. While the summoning sickness is really well implemented, the system no longer works without tokens once the stun ability comes into play. When a creature in Keyforge becomes stunned, you have to place a stun status card on it. The next time the creature is used, the only thing that happens is the creature exhausts and the stun card is removed. That means the creature remains stunned until the player chooses the respective house and uses an entire action to remove the stun effect. I like the aspect that you always have a negative effect from the stun. No matter if you choose the house in the next round or not. However, the stun effect somehow feels strange because it is the only status effect that is marked with the card in the game. Another difference compared to Magic is creature positioning. In contrast to Magic, the positioning of creatures on the playing field plays a role. And the position in the battle line matters much more than I initially expected. Creatures enter play on the flank of the battle line. The creatures on the far right and far left of a player's battle line are on the flanks. Many cards are restricted to be used on cards or creatures that are either on flanks or not on flanks. This creates a nice condition that can be added to cards which then creates interesting decision-making for the players. Let's say you have a removal that kills a creature that is not on a flank, but the most powerful creature of the opponent is currently on a flank. Do you use the removal on a weaker creature, or do you keep it in your hand and hope your opponent plays another creature and puts it on the flank you're expecting? Some cards also refer to their neighbors. For example, splash damage that deals damage to all the neighbors of a creature. Other cards allow a player to swap the position in the battle line. There are quite some mechanics that interact with the battle line. Another one is taunt, for example. If a creature has the taunt keyword, um, any of its neighbors that do not have the taunt keyword cannot be attacked by an enemy creature. In the battle line, the creatures with taunt are slid slightly forward to indicate their presence to the board. I like this way of positioning, because it is a logical visualization of a creature that is dominant, and it, again, makes another status token unnecessary. In addition, it is, again, a mechanic that helps you to protect your most valuable creatures. And if you position the taunt creature correctly, it asks an interesting question to your opponent. Can you kill both the taunting creature and my stronger creature right next to it in one turn? Altogether, the battle line is a super, super simple implementation but affects so many cards in the game and so many mechanics, um, it is maybe not the most innovative implementation. But it felt very good when when playing the game. The next game mechanic I would like to talk about are archives. A player's archive is a face-down game area. And card abilities are the only means by which a player is permitted to add cards to their archive. During step 2 of a player's turn, after they select an active house, the active player is permitted to pick up all cards in their archive and add those cards to their hand. For example, there are cards that let you archive a creature from the battlefield or a card from your hand or a random top card from your library. For me, the Archive is a game mechanic for hand management. Why that, you may ask? From a design perspective, the Archive serves two purposes. Both by removing cards from the traditional cycle of drawing, playing, discarding, and then reshuffle the cards back into your deck. The first purpose is that you can archive away less useful or conditional cards and make it more likely to get the cards you really need after the next shuffle process. Second is that you can choose to return the archive to your hand, which allows you to plan a monster turn, where you store pieces of a combo in the archive until you true the other pieces. It basically ensures a bigger and specific hand on a future turn. I have not seen a mechanic like that before in a card game, and I think it really gives you the chance to play more cards that are only good against specific decks or tactics. This is a mechanic that is very well suited to mitigate some of the randomness that is created from the unique deck game aspect. Because you can just get rid of some of your cards you maybe not need in this matchup. I really wonder if at some point in time during development archiving was a player ability that could be used as a player action uh, without the need of a specific card that lets you archive. The last mechanic I would like to talk about are chains. Chains can be used in two different ways. The first one is to balance decks. Chains are a way of handicapping a particularly powerful deck or skilled player. By changing a player's chain count It changes the number of cards they are allowed to draw back up at the end of their turn. It's a fairly simple yet elegant solution to the fact that every deck is unique and some may be a bit more powerful or overpowered. The second use case is to balance strong cards. So you cannot only get chains before the game, you can also get chains during the game. So some card abilities cause a player to gain one or more chains. And if a player gains chains, that player increases their chain tracker by the number of chains gained. This means you are not allowed to draw all of your cards at the end of the turn. Um, But then at the end of the turn, um, you also reduce the chain counter as well, though. The effect is not permanent, but it has some effect on on the number of cards you have access to. I think this is a nice way of adding a cost to very powerful cards because it means you borrow some kind of resource in form of available cards from a future turn. I also like in general that you draw a lot of cards each turn. That means that you get access to your entire deck in most games um, which also allows you to plan strategically because you will get to the cards you are looking for. This is something I really I really like and um, it feels better than drawing only one card uh, each turn because you you will never run out of resources um, and get the feeling that you cannot do anything and that's it for all the mechanics I wanted to talk about and finally the conclusion I had more fun playing the game than I expected from reading the rules. The rules felt too simple when I first read them. But Keyforge introduces some new game mechanics that make you have to think in a different way and to forge new tactics. Board presence, for example, isn't as important as it is in other games. And hand management on the other side is much more important. And the fact that for once you don't have to attack your opponent's hit points feels surprisingly different. Um, As a conclusion, I made a list of pros and cons about the game, which I will go through now quickly. On the pro side of the game, I really uh, like that the border to enter the game is extremely low, both money-wise and time-wise. For less than 10 euros, you get a deck that is ready to play. In addition, the basic rules of the game are very simple. Much of the complexity is solved by the text on the cards. The game is therefore easy to learn, but hard to master. Unique deck names are just awesome. They remind me to the randomly generated monster names in Diablo. Um, Actually, the unique names play an important role in player engagement with their deck. If you search for Keyforge on the internet, you find a lot of people talking about... um, their decks names instead of uh, their decks power. Uh, Keyforge is also very much a discovery experience. In the sealed format for example you start to play a game with an unknown deck. You are not allowed to look through your decklist for example before the game starts. This creates a very nice aura of the unknown. However if Fantasy Flight games want to keep that discovery moment alive they will need to produce a lot of new content to keep players engaged. I'm looking forward to see how they manage that. Uh, House choice is a great combat mechanic, although it's actually quite the opposite. The mechanic makes sure that a player doesn't get too far into the lead, so it's more like an anti-lead mechanic. There are also new win conditions here have to forge ember instead of uh, killing your opponent. This feels surprisingly different. The gameplay is fast and there is little downtime, since you can hardly interact in your opponent's turn. Um, You can use the time to plan your own move, um, at least with half your attention. The layout of the cards is well made and the look and feel is really nice. Then you have the chains as the handicap mechanic, which feels uh, like a fantastic idea um, and I'm looking forward how it will be used in um, in the tournament environment. And there is no net decking. You can just look up what the synergies of your deck are or what, are, what the weaknesses are. You will have to find out by playing your deck. Um, on the con side I think um, only one win or loss condition is fine but it can become a little bit boring um, if you play the game um, more often. I would have loved to see another another win or lose condition. For me, the combat system is uh, too deterministic. I don't like the fact that there are almost non-hidden information and I would have loved to see more interaction. So some kind of instant or anything you could do during the opponent's turn. And, um, yeah, I do not really like the artwork and the flavor of the game. Yeah, but it's, it, maybe it's only me because I've heard people that really like the, the fun aspect of the game or the flavor. And there is no deck customization. What means that there is really nothing you could do in between um, your playing sessions. So, that's everything I have to say about Keyforge for now. I will definitely play more of it. And I hope you enjoyed my first game review from a developer's point of view. If you liked it, let me know and I will do more of them in the future. If you want to get in touch with it, my website at nerdlikeaboss.com or find me on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook with the hashtag nerdlikeaboss. Thank you very much for listening and until next week, keep shooting for the moon and nerd like a boss.